0: Good morning and welcome to each of you. It's good to see you all here and uh, worship together again this morning. I want to continue looking at the book of Philippians this morning, uh, picking up in chapter three, and I find it interesting and exciting and affirming how God works sometimes. You know, the opening songs that Darren led us this morning um, goes right along with what the Lord laid on my heart, and then... Juan's devotional was actually taken from my text, and uh, he had no idea, and, uh, and that's, um, that's a blessing as well, and um, I don't consider these types of things coincidences. Um, I believe somehow the Holy Spirit orchestrates um, these types of things to, to be a blessing to all of us. <clears throat> Now, as you recall, um, Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia or northern Greece, and the location of the first European church in a relatively small town, about two miles square, uh, and maybe about 10,000 people or so there, and there wasn't any Jewish synagogue and very few Jews. And so, Paul had a, developed a unique bond with this group of believers Which is reflected in the letter he wrote to them in Philippians, encouraging them. And what we see here, there's joy that comes through very strongly in this epistle, but the focal point, if you really, uh, the focal point of the letter really is Jesus Christ and the gospel, which is the source of that joy. And so again and again, Paul points back to Jesus Christ as the focal point of the believers. So then after he paints a beautiful picture of Jesus in chapter 2, demonstrating this selfless humility, he gives three examples. Uh, He gives the example of Timothy, a half-Jew, Epaphroditus, a Gentile, and then himself, who was a fully credentialed Jew, and he certainly had the credentials to go along with that um, with that claim. And then he concludes uh, that part of the letter by declaring that knowing Jesus Christ is priceless, worth far more than anything on earth. And just reading verses. 8 to 11 of chapter 3, kind of wrapping up that first part, and I added some of my comments um, or editorialized a bit of what this is as I read this. Indeed, I count everything, all of my impressive accomplishments and credentials as loss because of the surpassing worth, the priceless value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, all of my earthly accomplishments, and count them as rubbish, as stinky garbage, or a pile of manure, in order that I may gain the priceless gem of Jesus Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead." So this is how he concluded the description of himself as the third example after Christ on selfless humility. Now we want to read the rest of this chapter, and I'm going to read this from the King James Version initially, and then as we go through it, I'll be referring to the ESV. I find, um, I have found... The language of the King James, especially these first several verses, um, difficult to comprehend. uh, Might be the way of saying it's the the way that the words are used. It just it it doesn't quite. It makes it difficult for me to understand exactly what he's saying. But I want to read it in this, and then I'll come back to it, and we'll talk through this a bit. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect, but I follow after, that I may apprehend that which I also am apprehended of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and in anything ye be otherwise and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already obtained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their, in their shame, whose, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, and whence also we look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself." I want to look at this text with you and and discern what the Lord is is te- what God is teaching us through this text today. And the the first two verses, what I was referring to the the term apprehended is one that kind of puzzles me as I read that. And what does that mean and so forth? But before we get there, he starts out in verse twelve, not and this is from the ESV now, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, Um, and then he goes on, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So we already saw in verse 12 that Paul ends his previous sentence and paragraph and thought expressing a desire That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I mean, that's what he was after. That's what he wanted. And so that's why he starts this now. Not that I've already obtained this. He hasn't attained the resurrection of the dead. He hasn't attained knowing Christ the way that he wants to, that he was referring to. Um, But... He understands that of his own efforts, he can't ever attain that. It doesn't matter how much effort he puts into it, he will never be able to obtain this. And then he inserts the word, or, am already perfect. Neither am I perfect. Um, and this, I think, indicates that perfection is not something that can be achieved by Paul, but it's also stating that God is not done perfecting Paul. So he's saying my own efforts can't do it, and even God is not done perfecting me. But this is an ongoing thing that I am being sanctified, I am being matured, I am growing spiritually in an ongoing way, and I have not, I have not attained, I have not accomplished what I, what I really, really want. And I, I think that this also alludes back to verse six of chapter one, where he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He was telling that to the Philippian believers, but it's also referring to himself that God is doing something in me, and he will bring it to completion, but it's it's not there yet. It, it's a work in progress. And he will will bring it to completion as he determines, or when he determines. So Paul himself is still growing, is still being sanctified. And like we do, I'm sure the Philippians, believers, looked up to Paul as a spiritual giant. But even he was not... Content with his level of spiritual maturity or his uh, or growing spiritually. He had not yet arrived. He had not yet achieved his goal. He was not satisfied with where he was spiritually. He wanted more and deeper understanding and knowledge and relationship with Jesus than what he had. So that's that's what he's starting out here and saying, well, I I haven't, I'm not where I want to be. Uh, and then the Greek word. Translated apprehend in the King James, here carries the idea of, of getting with downward force um, or obtaining with downward force. And the best analogy I could think of is that of a football tackle. It's grabbing hold of and pulling down, uh, it's, it's that kind of an aggressive behavior. It's not only grabbing but it's bringing down. The US, ESV uses the term making it my own or the idea of taking possession. Um, another, a couple of other translations use the word capture or overtake to try to communicate what, what this means. But I think what Paul is, is trying to communicate, or what he is communicating to the Philippian church here is that he wants to pursue, he wants to chase after, he wants to follow after spiritual growth and maturity with the same intensity that Jesus pursued him on the Damascus road when he literally was knocked down. But he wants to pursue... That spiritual growth, a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, but he wants that. He wants that. He wants to be, pursue that in the way that Jesus pursued him and catching him, and then he continues that in verse thirteen. He says, "Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own." Um, so after saying what he did here and that that's what he wants to do, that he wants to overtake or capture this spiritual growth and maturity he turns right around and says, there's no way he can do it. As much as he pursues it with everything that he has, there's no way that he can't. It's what he wants, but he knows that it's, it's not attainable. Then he continues, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And I would say that Here is where he gets to the theme of this passage and the theme of this message. But one thing I do. For him, for Paul, it all boiled down to one thing. And one thing only. I've entitled this morning's message, Pursuing One Thing. And, you know, ask yourself... Can you boil down your life ambitions, your life goals to one thing? Does everything we do point to that one thing? If I'm truly honest, I'm not sure that I could say that my life revolves around one thing and one thing only. But that is what Paul is saying. This one thing, He's pursuing one thing, not three things. He's not prioritizing his top five life goals, but this one thing I do. And the one thing is found in the next verse, but first he gives two qualifiers, not qualifiers maybe, but insights into explanations of that one thing as well. It gives two insights into what this one thing is, and that is forgetting what's behind and straining with what to what lies ahead. Now, I think that most of us are uh, similar enough that probably neither one of these come naturally for most of us. Is that where we forget what's behind us and um, and just simply focus on the has I. Th- I think that most of us probably become preoccupied with the present and are often distracted by the past. Um, I, I find it that way for myself. We focus on what could have been, we focus on feeling sorry for ourselves or that we didn't have the right opportunities or we didn't make the right decisions. And this idea of forgetting what lies behind in the original language actually has even a greater emphasis on the forgetting. It is completely forgetting. It is uh, eradicating what lies behind. And how does one do that? We can't forget in that we can't... uh, get to a place where we no longer recall what transpired in the past. We cannot get to that point. However, what Paul is advocating here is that we don't dwell on the past, that we don't allow the past to dictate what we do today and in the future. And uh, we don't rely on the past as a crutch. We don't use it as an excuse for what we do or don't do. Uh, in the present. We all have things we regret. We were, wish we're different or that we wish we could change, including Paul. Imagine, I mean, Juan mentioned that this morning, but imagine being the man who had aggressively hunted and persecuted and probably killed other Christians before he became a believer. He had to live with himself every day with that reality In a similar way, our pasts aren't pretty, um, you know. But God, Paul chose, made a conscious decision to completely forget, not to be controlled or dictated by the past. He can't pretend it didn't happen. However, he can choose that he's not going to focus on that. He's not going to act based on those previous decisions. On the flip side, we can have tremendous accomplishments in the past. And in the same way, we don't want to elevate those or rely on those in ways that are unhealthy. We're to set those aside with our failures, and we're to strain forward. We're to reach forth to those things that lie ahead. And the focus is on the future not on the past. Then verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul's one thing is pressing on. Pressing on toward the goal. The prize and I notice that both of these are singular. It's it's again reaffirming the one thing. It's an active persistence. It's constant work. It's intense effort. It's all-consuming energy. Pressing on is what Paul is doing. One of the final races of the in the 1924 Olympics, the Olympic, the elite athletes had left the to run was a 440-yard race. The group of runners took off from the starting line and were bunched together as they rounded the first bend of the track when one of the runners was pushed and he fell uh, down off the track. Quick as a flash, he was back on his feet and almost as if he's supernaturally empowered by this unfair incident the flying Scotsman ran like never before and caught up with the other runners and passed them as he crossed the finish line, beating them all, winning a race that seemed to be unfairly ripped from him at the very beginning. This story of Eric Little's sheer determination and refusal to dwell on what happened pressed on to the mark, the finish line, and won. And you know, this story is captured beautifully in the classic 81 um, movie, Chariots of Fire. Eric went on to give his life as a missionary in China until his death at age 43 in a Japanese internment camp in 1945. Now, putting ourselves in Eric little shoes, how many of us would have been concluded that the race was lost when we were unfairly pushed out of bounds, pushed down. Eric fo- focused on one thing when he refused to let what happened keep him down and to keep him and, and he just focused on crossing that finish line as quickly as possible. Paul was laser-focused on one thing as well, pressing on relentlessly pursuing the prize so what is or what was the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus i don't know that i had really given that a lot of thought prior to studying this if we've given it much thought i have assumed that we most of us probably conclude heaven As i thought about this and what this medal or trophy or finish line or prize alludes to, I went back and read several other verses. Uh, Well, first of all, the last two verses of this chapter and verses 10 and 11 earlier. So the last two verses of this chapter say, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And in 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul is not talking about going to heaven here. Rather, he is focused on awaiting a Savior that's going to transform the world and his body into a glorious resurrected body. And so it seems like Paul's goal here, the prize, is not so much heaven, but being in God's new world with our new bodies. It's, uh, it's being a part of God's work. And so the prize of the upward call, seems to be resurrection life itself. Again, going back, you know, he started out, not that I've already attained the resurrection, but now he's like, but that is the prize. That is what he's... So Paul's straining forward towards it like an athlete, honed into the finish line for a prize that awaits beyond. It's living in the present but always keeping in mind and keeping in focus the light of that glorious future that is is there. Pursuing one thing, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on to the goal of the prize of the upward call or high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was not basing his life on what had transpired in the past, but now was focused on the light, living now in the light of that glorious future. So what is the one thing we focus on? What is the dominant thing that motivates us? What gets us out of bed in the morning? Is it that we're so focused on awaiting Jesus Christ that we pattern our lives in ways that we know honors him first and foremost? Or do we have some other reference point, some other one thing that we choose to orient our lives around, how we live? Something for us to think about, something that's challenging to me. <clears throat> he then continues in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Now, this is an interesting... um, So Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, to the church there. Up until this point, and even after this verse, I believe, or maybe it's a couple of verses here, Paul is addressing them, the church there, here now, he's including himself. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Um, so he's including himself among those in the Philippian church who consider themselves spiritually mature. Those that they haven't attained perfection, but they are being perfected, being sanctified. They're no longer the babes, the spiritual babes that only drink spiritual milk. But Paul is not contradicting what he started out this passage with when he said that he's not attained, that he's not perfect. He's simply acknowledging that he is maturing. And there were also Philippian believers who were more mature and able to help those that were less mature and new converts within the Philippian church to grow spiritually. It seems Paul is encouraging these most mature Philippian believers that even they will not always see things exactly the same way, even though they are more spiritually mature. They're not going to at the same time, emphasizing that oneness and unity is important, and in time, God's grace um, will allow them that they can accept differences while remaining one in Christ. And he concludes that, in the ne- that thought in the next verse where he says, only let us hold true to what we have obtained. And so that doesn't mean that everyone can believe what they want, that you accept everything, but rather the mi- that minor differences can exist while maintaining faith in Jesus Christ, keeping the main thing first. And so, this Philippian church was still a young church. They were learning. Paul's encouraging them to continue to grow in grace and what God had revealed to them so far, understanding that he, his goal is to bring one-mindedness to the group, even among these differences. Um, John 17, Jesus prayed for perfect oneness in the word with one heart and one spirit. We see that as at the heart of Jesus. And so, that's what Paul is is advocating here is like yes there may be differences make sure that you stay true to the faith but over time and with the grace of God those differences can unite or can be um, can dissipate as, as you become united and so forth so Paul's emphasis uh, here is that he wants them to be aware of of what truth is in order to identify a potential false teaching from the Judaizers specifically which he had referenced earlier in this chapter, but beyond them as well and to be, get grounded in truth, rooted in truth, so they can better spot untruth. Then he continues in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Given that the Philippian believers were predominantly, if not exclusively, Gentile, the Judaizers were really only one threat, and there were pagan influences around them as well. Um, There in Philippi, (laughs) up on the mountain, was a Um, Acropolis, and a pagan temple right there uh, in Philippi. So Paul not only sets himself up as an example for them to follow, but he also wants them to keep their eyes on others who are walking wisely as well among their, their brothers and so forth. So he's not the only example that he's holding out here, but one among others So that even others can pattern their lives after. And it's this idea of join in imitating me actually has an idea of joint imitation in the original language. So in Philippi, there were maturing believers who were good examples to others, including Paul himself. They imitated each other. And they were to keep doing so, and Paul was also among those who were imitating those that were mature and maturing believers. And so they weren't only to be models uh, to those that were less mature, but they were doing this all together and examples and modeling this for each other, continuously learning from each other. And, and so this was a rather intensive as well as stimulating discipleship model for them to follow after. They were modeling their lives after each other, those that were more mature, and then also modeling that for the younger, less mature believers as well. And then verse 18 and 19, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. First thing I notice here as I read this is that Philippians is a letter characterized that is overflowing with joy. And here Paul is expressing that he's telling them even with tears. It wasn't all joy. There was a deep sadness here that this false teaching um, could affect the church at Philippi. It's unclear exactly who Paul is referring to in these verses. It could be pagans there, although unbelievers. It could be Judaizers that he already mentioned. It might be um, some other kind of false teachers. But given the tears that he, the expression of his tears, it seems like it likely was uh, somebody other than just simply unbelievers, but it was rather false teachers of some kind. Probably seen in other churches, but not yet in Philippi. And so he's telling them to beware, be on the lookout. And there's four characteristics that Paul identifies here as their enemies of, of Jesus Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. And as I understand it, the belly here in this would refer to the lowest part of our human nature or the most base or most vile. And so basically it's their God is following the dictates of their fleshly desires. Their glory is in their shame. They relish and gloat in that which is shameful and disgraceful. And their minds are set on earthly things. What I find is that he doesn't state it here, but in contrast in the, this passage, he has really shown the four, these four characteristics, a contrast of them for believers. The end for believers resurrected and glorified bodies, and for these, destruction. Their God, for believers, our Redeemer and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, not the belly, not those base desires. Their glory, being transformed into the image of Christ, not their shame and disgraceful actions. And their minds or focus Everything is subject to Jesus Christ, not set on earthly things. So there's a huge difference here. The contrast is almost as extreme as you can get. And yet it's a good reminder of me, what list best characterizes my life and my motivations? Remember... Philippi was a Roman colony. It's located in northern Greece, in Macedonia, along the main road, the Via Egnatia, that connected the Asia Minor, or Turkey, to the Adriatic Sea, with easy access across the Adriatic Sea to Italy and to Rome. So close contact could be kept with Rome, their mother city. Roman generals and colonists settled in Philippi more than 100 years before Paul arrived with the gospel. So these colonists, these generals, were proud to be Romans and did their best to pattern their lives and to do things in the way that it would be done in Rome. They were bringing Rome to Philippi. The Roman Empire had a Caesar. The emperor who was to be worshipped as Savior and Lord. It's in this context that Paul penned the climax or apex of this chapter, and probably this entire letter. We are citizens of heaven. Christians are citizens of heaven. So what does it mean, or I should say, does this mean... That we're in a waiting period until we go to heaven where we really belong? Is that what being citizens of heaven means? Is it like we're just waiting to go there? How would this have been understood in this context with if somebody in Philippi said, I am a citizen of Rome? Would that have been an indication that they were anticipating moving to Rome? No, it would not have. Philippi, being a Roman colony, that was actually exactly the opposite was the case. The role of Roman citizens in a Roman colony like Philippi was to bring Roman life, bring Roman culture, bring Roman rule into northern Greece and to expand the influence of the great Roman Empire on behalf of the emperor. If Philippi were to be attacked by barbarians, or if there was a local rebellion, what would happen? It would be assumed that the Roman emperor, the rescuer or savior, would intervene and would send a force from Rome to Philippi in order to restore order and to reinforce that Rome is in control. Rome is in power here. It's in that context, that's the picture that Paul is painting here for the Philippians. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The church in Philippi was a Roman, was a colony of heaven, an outpost with the responsibility of bringing the culture and rule of heaven to influence where they lived here on earth. And the same is true of our church here today. We're going to find ourselves weak and inadequate in so many ways. Our bodies will get old and tired, eventually dying. But our hope remains and lies in the fact that the true Savior, the true Lord, the King of kings, King Jesus himself, is going to come and change all that, transforming the entire world to be filled with his glory, and transforming our bodies so that they are like his glorious resurrected body that can never be ravaged with death and sin and decay again. For the Philippian believers, this was a shift. This meant They were shifting their loyalty, their allegiance from Caesar to Jesus Christ, the true emperor, the true king. And it was a challenge for these believers, whether they were Roman citizens or not. This this was not easy for them. What does it mean to give their primary, their first and foremost allegiance, not to Rome, but to heaven? not to Caesar, but to Jesus Christ, and to trust that Jesus in due time will bring the life and rule of heaven to bear on the whole world, including themselves. And it's a question that each of us has to wrestle with today. Is our primary allegiance truly to heaven, where our citizenship lies, and to Jesus Christ, the King of heaven? What does it mean for us, Faith Christian Fellowship of Catlett, to really be and live as a colony of heaven? We're promised resurrected bodies in the future, and therefore we shouldn't be distracted by the various desires and appetites in this present earthly state of the world, but rather we're conduct. To conduct ourselves in such a way that reminds us, reminds those around us, that our citizenship is not here on this earth, but in heaven, another kingdom, another realm. We simply think and live differently than those who are not yet heavenly citizens. That's the reality. Heavenly citizens will live and think differently. So in conclusion, we're just completing the first week of the new year. This is our first Sunday that we're gathered here. And I found it interesting that the timing of this, it's a time of New Year's resolutions and goal setting. And I'm not suggesting that is all wrong. I am not suggesting that. However, Paul models something different here in that he models an aggressive and tenacious pursuing of one thing. Forgetting what's behind, not allowing the past to dictate or control or restrict the present, and straining for what lies ahead, focused on the finish line, the prize, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, pressing on to spiritual maturity and growth, never satisfied, always longing for more, reaching for more, and eagerly awaiting the coming of Jesus and that resurrected life. One thing. Everything else revolves around that one thing. It seems as if Paul's one thing was pursued because of his devout citizenship in heaven. And so as a church, we're citizens of a colony of heaven, another nation, another kingdom. However, I would say that our allegiance ultimately reflects our true citizenship. Where does our allegiance lie? Let's be faithful and worthy citizens of the heavenly kingdom, giving our total allegiance to Jesus' kingdom of heaven. Let's bring and live out the values of Christ's superior kingdom into our daily lives, living and acting as devoted citizens of heaven. In conclusion, just reading again verses 13 and 14 and 20 and 21. Brothers, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word, for uh, this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the privilege of being a citizen of heaven. And I pray that we would never um, take that for granted, I pray that our allegiances would reflect this reality, that we are a citizen of another kingdom, of another nation, even as we live out our lives on a day-to-day basis here in another world, in another environment. I pray, too, that you would enable us to Focus on that one thing, of pressing toward the finish line, of being percent, persistent, of being relentless, of, of being so focused on the thing of awaiting your return, of coming for us, and of, of building your kingdom, um, of completing your kingdom, and giving us resurrected bodies, I just ask that you would uh, you'd be with us as we go from here, as we consider our goals, our ambitions. How do those align with what you want us to be doing, with your kingdom, with the values of the, the kingdom of heaven? I ask that you would dismiss us here with your ble- blessing. Pray a blessing on the noon meal as well. Pray that you would bless that our nourishment, our time of fellowship and interaction may be pleasing and honoring to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.